Our reading today is in Romans 15, 1 to 13. We who are strong, are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbour for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but, but at, as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the, will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen. There we go. We are in now the last two Sundays of looking through this book of Romans, where we've sort of off and on, sort of been in here over the last sort of course of the year or so. We'll then start to, to think about Lent and start to look through Luke's gospel and see Jesus' uh, approach towards the cross. But we have two sort of more important weeks yet of Romans to think about. Um, from chapter 14 to chapter 15, 13, where our reading finishes this morning, Paul is giving a fatherly sort of warning, correction for the Romans, where disagreements on secondary matters threaten to divide them. And last week we thought a little bit about secondary matters and what some of those might be, rather than rehash that. Maybe just go back and listen to the podcast or something um, to refresh your mind on that if you're unsure. But the problem is, and the truth is, we all like to look better than others sometimes. We all like to think sometimes that we know better. We all sometimes just like to get our way and all of these three things are toxic to community. So Paul's challenge last week was look up to Jesus, not down on others. Don't take yourself too seriously and help, don't hinder. I said last week that chapter 14 and 15 are addressed to two different groups, the weak and the strong. And, and last week's passage was focused mostly towards the weak, or at least it's addressed towards them, but really it's relevant for all. This week is addressed towards the strong, but again, it's relevant for all. 
And this week what happens is Paul is thinking beyond just the issues last week he was thinking about, the three that tended to bring up some divisions and argument, to thinking about the weak and the strong in faith more generally. And here's the three sort of important points to take from this morning. If you take nothing else, take this. They're printed on your sheet there as well. One, it's not all about you. Two, look to the book. And three, God does his work his way. If you look there at those first three verses, I think Paul's theme could be summarized. It's not all about you. This little section here is all about how do you use strength? How do you use power? There are some here with strength in their faith, a strength that not everybody has and not everybody has to the same level. But the question is, what do they do with it? Power or strength itself isn't the problem. Plato once said, the measure of a man is what he does with power. In everyday terms, we can maybe think about it like this. What would you do if you won the lottery? Because money's a form of power, isn't it? It's a form of strength. Not everybody has the same amount. Some people have more than others, and that's a form of strength that you have. But what would you do if you actually won the lottery? We'd love to think, I think, that we'd be sensible, we'd be charitable, we'd be humble, we'd be selfless. But do you know that you wouldn't end up blowing it on yourself? Or how many months would it maybe take before you're installing the guitar-shaped pool? Or you're mowing a champagne bottle into the lawn? Or you're bathing in Evian. This is all about what strong believers, those rich in faith, those rich in an appreciation of grace and acceptance and peace in Christ, will do with that strength. We who are strong, Paul begins, and instantly Paul plays his cards here that he agrees with the strong and he numbers himself amongst the strong. That really this is where he falls in terms of his opinions and his place in life. And that maybe leads us to one initial question, doesn't it? Can you be humble and say that you're strong? Humility is an attractive quality isn't it and it's a right response to who God is how glorious how great how good and gracious God is and and how much by definition you know we're not humility is a right response and Paul encourages that just earlier on chapter 12 there's three here for by the grace given to me I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And notice there just a couple of things quickly. Think with sober judgment, he says. Don't think too highly or too lowly. Don't think less of yourself. Think of yourself less. Think with sober judgment, according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. See, some has, uh, have been given more faith by God than others. 
And it would be a false humility to pretend otherwise. And yet, on the other hand, there's that need to be careful, isn't there? 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. It's Paul writing again. And in some ways, strength is knowing your weakness. It's knowing your lack of knowledge. It's knowing the things that used to be unknown unknowns. Being strong is just simply being more aware of your unknowns. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the weaknesses of the weak. Or there in in your translation you might have the failings. But it makes more sense if it reads to bear with, and the word that literally is to hold up, to carry, the weaknesses, the lack of strength, that is, and the word in the Greek speaks of that, it's a uh, dunamai, uh, dunamai, dynamic, power, not having power, not having strength. Hold up the lack of strength of the weak, and the word there is literally those who don't have strength, who don't have power. The obligation of the strong is to hold up the weaknesses, the lack of strength of those who don't have strength. They are weak. There are those here weak in faith, but notice there again what it says and what it doesn't say. They are weak in faith. They don't have no faith, but they're weak in faith. They're believers, but they need help. And there are ways in which our faith sometimes can be found to be a little weaker, needing a little help. It's not that they have no faith, but that it's weaker. It's a faith that maybe is more up and down because of different things. Let me give you a few examples that might cause this. Maybe it's up and down because of emotions. It's a faith that's strapped into our emotional roller coaster rather than being kind of grounded in faith. It's kind of up and down. It's a faith that wants to always feel good and life doesn't always allow that. Or maybe it's a faith that's up and down because of levels of comfort. That faith is okay for me and doing well so long as work goes well, so long as my relationships are moving along nicely, so long as I feel settled, so long as my income's steady, so long as my health remains okay. Because my faith is okay so long as life feels easy. Or maybe it's up and down depending on the crowd. That my faith is somewhat uncomfortable going against the tide on difficult issues. We've seen that this week, haven't we, for Kate Forbes, that someone actually displaying a strength in that, that actually despite what the crowd may feel, having the strength and the resolve to hold firm to what she believes with conviction. But that's not always easy. Because sometimes our faith wants still to be liked. Or how about lastly, even just confusion, that weakness can come in because there's simply a lack of clarity about core beliefs. That we want to have a faith that in a way just doesn't really think so much. We don't want to have to think too much harder. They have weak faith, but not no faith. And here's a few truths from this already. We're all equally valued. We're all equally loved by God. But we don't all have the same level of faith all the time. We could ask... Maybe why is that? Why is it that some are stronger and some are weaker? Or perhaps put a different way, how do I get stronger? A spoiler 
for you. The, the main part of this is in verses 4 to 7. But let me give you a few introductory factors that might help you to grow stronger. I had to work very hard at this, but there's five T's. The last one was the, was the really tricky one. Uh, firstly, time. Usually, time, years, life experience leads to a strength of faith. Time. There's trials. The struggles and sorrows of life tend to lead to us deepening all the more and depending all the more in our faith on Jesus and putting the right value on things. There's a factor of time. There's a factor of trials. There's the influence of teachers. That if you are around those stronger than you, good teachers, good examples, they'll push you. They'll help you to learn, especially in the practicalities of Christian life. There's time, there's trials, there's teachers, there's theology. There's a need to be grounded in good doctrine. Paul puts it in this way in Ephesians 4, uh, speaking about this very thing, that so that we may no longer be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine. Time, trials, teachers, theology, and then lastly, this was the difficult one, and I was stretching this a bit, uh, the tab. What level of faith, what sort of tab limit has God given you? Because here there's a measure of faith assigned. And we don't, and we can't always control that. For some, that capacity is just a little higher than others. No better, no more valuable, but some people are just capable of believing that bit more. We're all equally valued and loved, but we don't all have the same level of faith. Secondly, actually, if we're honest, we are all at different times and different moments around different things, both weak and strong. We are all weak in some areas, and we're all strong in some areas. We all have different gifts. Chapter 12 spoke about that. We're not all the same. We have different areas we do well in, and we have different areas we struggle a little more in. We're all weak. We're all strong. But thirdly, strength is for other people's benefit. We have an obligation to bear with the weaknesses of the weak, not to please ourselves. And this is completely countercultural, isn't it? Because we live in a culture around us that so emphasizes and insists upon an idea of living life entirely for your own satisfaction and pleasure. It could be seen in so many places that I could sort of point you towards, but even just the little phrase, you do you. And the thing is, what will happen is a simple Google search will reveal some sort of very nice sort of background pictures for your phone and memes to sort of send around for your social media and everything. And all of a sudden, because it's in a nice font and there's a bit of glitter uh, and some nice pastel colors, the blatant, unrestrained narcissism somehow doesn't exist anymore. Because really, it is just a way to try and defend a way of life that for you and for those around you is utterly self-centered. And actually, it's in fact not loving to leave such a narcissist to drown themselves, staring at their own reflection by the riverside with you do you. No, for goodness sake, do not just do you do you. Make your life about more than that. Life isn't just about your comfort and your pleasure. Let each of us 
And he's moving beyond just talking to the strong now to talking to everyone. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. And notice that good doesn't necessarily mean to do whatever your neighbor wants. Doesn't mean to do whatever your neighbor feels is right. But what is good? Think back to Romans chapter 8. Let me remind you of a couple of verses here. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. He uses all things, even the things you wouldn't choose, that you don't like, that are sad, that are in some ways maybe even bad. uses all things together for your good, your good being being conformed to the image of Jesus. Being made righteous, being made acceptable before God the Father, being made like Jesus. That's the good that we're to seek. Please your neighbour for their good to build them up. We're to aim to do all that we can to encourage that in others, to build them up, that those who are weak now or feel weak may not be weak for long if they're actually built up by those who are stronger, if they're helped along the way. So you have to start somewhere, don't you? And everyone who is strong was once weak. It's worth the strong remembering that sometimes, isn't it? I haven't reminded you for a few weeks, so I'll remind you again. Uh, I've been attending the gym. Uh, And you have to start somewhere. That's the thing, isn't it? And gradually you sort of feel, as you sort of get along, you're you're more experienced, you're you're less of a sort of newbie and a novice, and and you're getting experience. But you started somewhere. You started on the fives before you could ever get anywhere beyond that. But here's why we should really do it. Here's the important bit here in this first section. Look at verse 3. For, or because, and here's the explanation. Christ did not please himself. As always, Paul's reason for doing this comes from the gospel. That Jesus has borne our weaknesses, our lack of strength, our sin, our failings. And not only that, But he's held us up where we couldn't hold ourselves up. Let me turn back just a few chapters to Romans chapter 5 because Paul has explained how Jesus has done some of this in very similar language. This is Romans chapter 5 from verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It's a way of saying, I guess to try to put it more simply, he he has saved us, he is saving us, he will save us. All in Jesus, who has done it at a time at which we weren't yet friends, while we were still weak. 
He's not helped us just get that last 10% over the line. He's done all of it, all of the time, up until the day we die. Jesus is the one who is the strongest, and he's become weak, in a sense, in becoming human, in bearing on human limitations within himself. We thought about that right at the beginning in Philippians 2, that he took on human likeness, even dying in order to save us. And he saved us at the point not when we're strong, but when we're weak, when we're still sinners, not when we've started to get to it together and turn the ship around, but long before, dying for us even though we've sinned against him. And not only so that we're saved from judgment, but that he continues to hold us up while we're still weak in so many ways. The reproaches, he says, of those reproaching you fell on me. And Paul's quoting from Psalm 69 there, a psalm of David. And there's some layers of meaning here in what Paul is doing. Paul's quoting from David who's saying that those really reproaching God for what's going on in the nation here do that by reproaching David. He says, all these people reproaching me, they're, they're really reproaching God in doing it, but their way of doing it is to reproach me as the sort of messenger, me as the sort of representative, me as the under king underneath the king of kings. And he stands and faces the people's anger against God as his representative. And so David is saying it of himself. But it's also a psalm where David has an eye on the Messiah to come. And so Paul is saying that Jesus has fulfilled this fully. That he has faced the anger of people against the Father. The reproaches, the ones throwing the insults, the disgrace, are us. Every human being. Because every sin against God is an accusation. It's an accusation, isn't it, that God is somehow not good, not right, not perfect in his ways and his commands and his ordering of the world, that somehow he doesn't know better than us, that somehow his way isn't right, or that there's a greater good outside of God that he doesn't want to give me. Those accusations have fallen on Jesus but there's another layer of meaning there again. And that's that all of our sin brings reproaches and guilt and shame and dishonor on us. We look bad. We know that we're not right in some way. And we feel that sense of guilt and shame sometimes, don't we? That awareness that we've really messed up this time. And here's maybe the sweetest meaning of all. That Jesus at the cross, has taken all of that very guilt, shame, dishonor, the justified reproaches for our sin that we've brought on ourselves onto himself, that we might be free of it, that our guilt and our shame, our dishonor, might be finally got rid of. See, our job isn't to be Jesus for one another, you can't. But it's to point to Jesus. And it's to be somewhat like Jesus, which will be a very gradual process. But nonetheless, a gradual process we're all on if we're his. That was what Romans 8 was partly saying. 
The strong are to use their strength to build up brothers and sisters who can't stand themselves as Christ has done for us all. It's not all about you. But secondly, he encourages us here to look to the book. And I guess the question that Paul might be thinking about and answering here is, how do I get strong? Again, that might be an area that I can help you in a little bit with my present gym experience. But one of the things I found in the course of that is that there's some pretty helpful things out there to help you get a little stronger. But there's also some pretty crazy things. If I'd managed to remember to do this ahead of time, I had a couple of slides. Uh, but, uh, you know, you can find these bizarre kind of workout rituals. I couldn't manage to find this again on Google when I searched it, but I'm pretty sure I've seen a guy trying to do a chin-up holding uh, a treadmill that's, like, attached to him on a belt. Uh, I had another picture of, of a lady doing push-ups, leaning on a five-kilogram plate with sort of monster truck tires on her back. Or even just the really bizarre diets that start to get suggested. I heard of one which sounded amazing called the dessert for breakfast diet. Uh, and apparently there's some sort of scientific theory that you know eating all that sugar there at the beginning of the day is just the thing that you're missing. Or perhaps you might have seen some of the social media stuff with a guy called the liver king who eats sort of raw animal organs, I suppose, hearts, liver, kidney, all, all sorts of bizarre stuff, and, you know, reckons that's just the ticket that you're missing. But how do I get strong and avoid some of these crazy things? Paul lets us in that he's going to explain to us now, he begins for, because we know there's an explanation coming. And the explanation seems to be about why has Paul quoted from the Old Testament for us? For whatever was written in the former days, the Old Testament, was written for our instruction. The Old Testament, as well as the New, is equally, we could say, God-authored, true, relevant, and presenting the gospel. So that the Old Testament can't be dismissed but secondly, if Paul's reasoning can be found in the Old Testament, it shows that this has always been the case. And this has always been how God has worked. And I think that's why Paul is concerned to do that. Whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance, do you see these three things here? And through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have, thirdly, hope. Endurance, encouragement, hope, all found in the scriptures. The scripture gives us endurance. It guides us towards the end goal. It helps us to get there. It encourages us. It encourages us to grow, to learn, to change. It gives us hope because there's hope of a better future as well as the present. In fact, actually, in some ways, it works easier thinking about them in reverse, not endurance, encouragement, hope, but hope, encouragement, endurance. That hope gives us something better to endure for. That encouragement is what keeps us going along the way. If you receive those, then you're to share them with others. So he says, verse 5 here, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Because the scripture doesn't just reveal those qualities, endurance, encouragement, hope. It reveals the God of encouragement and endurance and hope. 
because we worship the God of the book, not the book. But the book becomes central because the Bible is the authoritative, the authorized, the comprehensive revelation of who God is. And so he's appealed to the Romans here, but now he appeals to God. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Because unity comes from pursuing spiritual maturity, not unity. As we grow, as a learner of Jesus and his ways, as we grow as disciples, we are pulled closer together as family by nature. He may grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify, the word is worship, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the goal is worship. And depth of worship comes from depth of faith. Not from particularly emotional music or lights or smoke or intense words but from a depth of faith. Therefore, and here's Paul's very practical sort of summary of what we're to do at the end of all of this. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. The first step then to a sort of glorious unity of worship of Jesus together is welcoming each other. But the tough bit is the second part of that sentence. As Christ has welcomed you. There's the tough bit. Because it's to love without limits. To forgive repeatedly. To hold back the critical word. To resist desire to gossip. And on and on. To love without limits. To grow in our faith and in community together. We need to look at the book, the source of endurance, encouragement, and hope. It's not all about you. We do look to the book, and then lastly, God does his work his way. For, Paul says, verse 8, and there's another explanation coming, because I tell you, Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that's a way of saying to the Jewish people, in order to confirm God's truthfulness. Paul lifts us out of the immediate context, the arguments about food, drink, festival days, etc., to ask why God has brought together a people from amongst Jewish people and Gentiles, i.e. everybody else in the world. Why has he done this? Why has he done something that's brought together a very diverse and different crowd? You might ask, why has he gone to all that bother because it's not been easy and tension between these two groups is frequent throughout the letter. That's a regular theme. But Jesus came serving faithfully a people, the Jewish people who largely rejected him. John begins his gospel by telling us this. John chapter 1 verse 10. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world didn't know him. He came to his own. And his own people didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And that proves that God doesn't make empty 
promises. He says, verse 8, for in order to confirm the promises he had made to the patriarchs. Jesus is the fulfillment, not the abandoning of those promises. It's worth taking a second just to outline what promises there are, those are. There's two in particular that Paul has in mind here. Many, many promises made to the patriarchs, but two in particular Paul has in mind. Firstly, the primary promise Paul has in mind, and also throughout the scriptures, is the promise of a global family to Abraham. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Go from your country, God says, and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you, and here's the promise, and I will make of you a great nation, and I'll bless you, and I'll make your name great, so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I'll curse, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Paul has that promise in mind because of that last phrase there, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Why would God go to the effort of bringing together a people of not only Jews, but Gentiles, that is, all the rest of the world too, because that was always the promise, that all the nations, all the peoples would be blessed and would be part of this. That's one of the two promises Paul has in mind. The second one, I think, uh, and where Paul goes in verses 9 to 12, is a promise to David of a Messiah king forever. Second Samuel chapter 7 says, When your, that is David, so he's speaking to David, days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's not any of his earthly sons who do that. But Jesus, right throughout the Gospels, all the Gospel writers and the Apostles want to make clear that Jesus is a fulfillment of that promise. But there's a second reason here. He said in order to confirm the promises he made to the patriarchs and then look in verse 9. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. God's plan was always that the whole earth be filled with his glory and all the peoples would worship him. But God's plan was also that Jesus be a light to the Gentiles and to lead us to him and to lead to us the church as his people, being a missionary people. Let me look very quickly just at those Old Testament references that he gives there from verse 9 to 12. And it's easier to pair verse 9 with verse 12 because they're speaking about the same thing, this promise to David. Look at verse 9. I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. The whole idea really is about Jesus worshipping amongst the Gentiles, not just Jewish people. I will praise you among the Gentiles. And initially, when this is written in the Old Testament, in, in Samuel again, this is David praising God for his salvation amongst all people. And he imagines the praise for God's glorious work and the wonders of his grace will entice all the peoples around Israel. But when Paul reads this, he sees the next verse in 2 Samuel, the great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed to David and his offspring forever. And Paul realises this is talking of the promised king, the promised Messiah. 
He's telling us then that this verse is fulfilled in Jesus. So that the verse means, I, Jesus, will praise you, God the Father, among the Gentiles. Isn't that amazing? And then verse 12 is similar. The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. And again, there's layers of meaning there. Paul's quoting from Isaiah 11. We know that verse 9 is used in the way I've just described because Paul includes verse 12 here, which is all about that promised king. So Paul's saying that one of the points, one of the functions of that anointed Messiah, that king, is to create a global worshipping kingdom under him so that Gentile people, not just Jews, would place their hope in the Messiah, Jesus. And then we have two verses that are about Jews and Gentiles worshipping together. Look at verse 10. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. It's from Deuteronomy 32. And it shows us that the purpose was always, even in the time of the Exodus, in the beginning of the forging and reforming of that people together, even then, was to be global, was to be beyond just Jews, was to be multicultural. And then again, verse 11. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. That's from Psalm 117, may the God of hope then fill you with all joy and peace in believing. What we believe shapes who we are. That's not just about information for information's sake, but the belief would lead you to joy and to peace. There's not enough talk in the world, is there, actually on the effect of spiritual health on well-being. We speak of physical health, we speak of mental health and emotional even, but not so much about spiritual health. But here, healthy, strong, a rooted faith and belief brings peace, the peace that people are looking for. Sang about that earlier, that people are looking at all sorts of places for answers that only God provides. And Paul finishes, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound, you may have over and above in hope. God does his work, his way. Might not always understand it, might not always see it, might not always like it. And some of the people receiving this here at the time don't. And certainly during Jesus's earthly ministry, didn't. But God does his work in his way. And we need to trust he has it in hand. Those who are now weak, or maybe just feel weak, may not remain weak. There's hope. There's room to see radical change and growth. Those who are not yet believers, or are not sure, or maybe actually are violently opposed, may not remain outside the people of God forever. This letter is all about actually how God saves a broken world. And here we see it make a deeply practical, everyday difference. What Paul doesn't do, because although he calls himself here strong, he is humble. He doesn't give himself as an example, which actually maybe he could have. Because Paul might be one of the most hopeful examples of the way in which the way that you are now might not be how you remain always and in which we can take hope and we can root our faith.
1 Timothy 12. He says, I thank him. He's given me strength. You see that there, that strength, strength and faith actually is a gift from God. Not something you can just drum up yourself. Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. And do you see what he's saying of himself there? Here's how badly I had made a mess of my life. Here's how much I had railed against God in my life. And here's how much I was not interested to change. And yet, here's what he's done. And Paul doesn't see his life as an amazing sort of story of him turning himself around. He sees it as, God has been gracious to me to show actually, I'm not sure you can go too far away from his grace that he can't reach out and save you from that. That as far as you might try to push that, you'll not outstep the reach of his grace. I'm an example of how truly gracious and patient the Lord is that he would pull even me from the brink back into his arms and use me in his service. I'm hope for all of you, I think Paul would say to them and to us, that you can't have messed it up as bad as me. And his grace was good enough to get hold of me so it can get hold of you too. Why don't we pray? In a few moments, we'll sing a closing song together.